Um, oh, this will come every year. We yeah. live here, yeah. so it's not to be missed as long as the weather cooperates. What do you like the best? Um, I think definitely the winter feast for the Why? food. Why do you like it? Um, well, you bring the kids, um, plenty of food, and um, just a good opportunity to get out and do something during winter in Hobart. I went over to Dark Park last Sunday night and had a look around there. What did you like? Uh, I just thought it was a really good atmosphere, you know, getting people out of their lounge rooms and homes on, uh, during the winter where they wouldn't normally. And it, terrific atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, have you seen any of the other artworks or events? Uh, I haven't this year, but just, uh, I did last year, went around a few and uh, try and get to see Tempest at T-Mag, but that runs on anyhow. So. Welcome to the Contemporary Art Tasmania podcast, What Are You Looking At? I'm your host, Thea Connell, and in this episode, Big, Bright and Shiny, we are delving into the conversation around art in festivals. What are the key considerations when making art for the festival context? What is the role of spectacle, and how do we tackle issues of accessibility, audience engagement and public space? This episode has been developed somewhat in response to Dark Mofo 2016. We used this opportunity to ask a few questions of the public attending Winter Feast and Dark Park. Um, we've been to the Dark Park. We just went to Winter Feast. We went under the, rail, the railway roundabout, railway roundabout yeah. and just a general wander. That's about it. Yeah. So you've seen a bit of the art at the festival? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So what, what has stood out to you as being For me, the most impressive thing about it is no no specific thing. It's just about the, the Hobart side of it, being born and bred here. So it's um it's much more about the amount of people that are here in the middle of winter and the vibe that it's got and what it's doing for Hobart and the fact that it's um yeah you know, I guess creatively inspired. It's really awesome as well. I like the big balls. You like it, Harry? Yeah, yeah. it's good. I really liked the lights in the long shed last week. I think it was about 40 lights and the... I think something like this is it's the atmosphere too. It, it just something gets people out at night time and it creates a, a different sort of atmosphere, something, something unusual. And, and it creates a bit of a, you know, just a vibe of all people out and just have, wondering around having a look. It's, it's that sort of thing that makes a difference. But, but stuff like this, it's unusual, you know, some bits, you know, more confronting than others too. Yeah. I think it's great for children because the first night there were so many children down here that it just exposed children at a really young age to think different, see things different, see new things. Yeah, that's no, good. I guess there's something for everybody. Art is um, with the eyes of the beholder, I suppose. Different people like different things. Um, I like sculpture and pottery and I like movement. I also like contemporary paintings and art. Um, the dust blowing was totally different for me. That was new. I can't say I understand it, but I appreciate it. I appreciate that somebody sees something and can do that. In 2016, Dark Mofo sprawled across multiple sites around Hobart and extended out to regional areas like New Norfolk, where Mike Parr's haunting exhibition Asylum was housed. Dark Park, situated at Macquarie Point, housed many of the large-scale artworks commissioned for Dark Mofo. 
an exhibition at the art school titled Brainstorm sat opposite the Dark Park Arena, where local Tasmanian artists' work was shown in theme with the Dark Mofo curatorial premise of The Storm. It was an easy stroll along the water's edge to reach the winter feast, a place of decadent feeding for the festival populace. Fire, light, sound and bodies were prevailing motifs, many searching for the unexpected or strange as they tread the path between sites. Pip Stafford had a chance to talk with Dark Mofo's creative director, Lee Carmichael, about some intentions behind the festival and the role of public art at Dark Mofo. Our starting point is the winter solstice, which throughout history has been used metaphorically to look at things like, well, it's, a, it's an extreme moment in the year, it's a turning point, so that brings out ideas around death and rebirth. Um, winter is a time of death, leading into spring. Uh, it's about going from dark into light. So any, any work, any artist that's exploring themes linked with that, even if loosely, is of interest to us. That's, that's our starting point. What's your connection with the audience? Are you thinking about the audience when you're making programming decisions? Yes, we are. We don't start with what the audience want, though. We start with whether or not the art or the artists are exploring themes that we're interested in. And then once we're, um, once that's captured our attention and imagination, then we start to work out how to find the right audience for those works. We were talking just before about Rio Giacchia's The, the Light work mm. and that, how successful mm. that was. Um, do you think it's those bright lights and big sounds and the things that are really spectacular that make good festival works or do the how, how do the quieter more conceptual mm. works shine through well there's no doubt okay so do, um, I'll go back a little bit um, when we dis, when we started Dark Mofo when we first had the idea for Dark Mofo David Walsh said we've got a summer festival we've got a music event we've got the museum's doing its, running its cultural agenda 12 months of the year. If we're going to do another festival, it needs a point of difference. And that seemed to be large-scale public art, which at that time was a space that we weren't really playing in. So it's really important for the festival that we do have large-scale public art, whatever that means. And, and a great example of that was Spectra, which we did the first year. So it went shot up, you know. 10 kilometres into the sky and engaged a really wide audience, new audience. Uh, there was sound components that was subtle and also large and spectacular at the same time. I think uh, with, a, with a festival that has quite large public funds now attached to it, that works that engage large audiences and new audiences are incredibly important. Do you think having something like Spectra and the other um, more sort of publicly engaging works, do you think that that has allowed you access to an audience for more challenging works, say Asylum, mm. um, because the audiences now trust you to deliver them something interesting? Yeah, I think getting a festival program is, I guess we're trying to find a balance, but it is about balancing the large works with the subtle, quiet, intense works that you also need to go you know, deep into your kind of subconscious to try and understand. Um, I think, so yes, we're, we're large-scale public art driven, but it's also incredibly important that we just offer new experiences for audiences. That's also what we're trying to do. 
take them out of their comfort zone into the night. I mean, you know, Hobart's a quiet city. <laughs> it's pretty quiet during winter um, to get people out into the streets, into the night, experiencing new things, whether it's art or just being out in the city. You know, that's really important to what we're trying to do. Can you describe the effect that Dark Mofo has had on audiences and, and on Hobart in a general sense? Well, I like other people <laughs> to talk about what it, what it's done for them. Um, my observation would be that, well, certainly for the city, it's given us an optimism around winter, and I think we can see that winter's an opportunity and that it's actually, you know, it's, it's an exciting time to be out and about. You can feel it, especially those longest nights. Like, we're just deeply connected to it. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think we're all, we've always been subconsciously connected to it and maybe Dark Mofo makes it more conscious just by getting outside away from the TV and walking around. Um, so, if, you know, just to, to summarise, it's probably, it's activated winter and it has people seeing winter differently because, you know, the weather hasn't actually changed. Do you... Um just going back to the artworks, do you think that Dark Mofo has given people an opportunity to engage with art that they might not have otherwise had? I think we'd love to think that Dark Mofo has um, reached new audiences. I think it's really important. Audiences that may be there for the spectacle that then find themselves engaging with art. On the, in, it isn't, aren't the artworks that are based around large-scale spectacle and having experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have had and I'm hoping that that leads to, to them to seek out more and more and to work harder and you know, just, yeah just to finish have you got any favorite dark mofo experiences from the last four years that really stand out for you uh, for me the experience that has had the most impact what uh, has been the Mike Park work which I found incredibly uh, troubling disturbing moving uh, and as a festival organizer it's often hard to let yourself go to experience these the, the works as they should be experienced because you're in a different headspace but that that particular show broke through all of that and I had you know, a serious uh, seriously affecting experience, uh, you know, walking through after Mike Parr had been in, in the space for close to 70 hours and seeing all the shattered mirrors which just instantly came through as shattered lives and broken lives, you know, it was just hard not to be um, deeply affected.
dark mofo, major commissions demand attention and inspire awe, while quieter works sit in the shadows, planted there to be stumbled upon. I had the privilege of talking with Sydney-based artist Michaela Gleave about her work presented at Dark Park this year, which was both the loud, bright spectacle and the quiet, contemplative experience. Maybe you could tell us a bit about the works that you've had at Dark Mofo. Um, just describe them oh. a little bit. Yeah. No problem. I'll turn um, my video off because you are a little bit crackly. So. I think I will too. Yeah. <coughs> I'm just on. I'm on Wi-Fi. Um, so we'll see how we go. Yeah. Sure. Um, Great. So yeah, as part of Dark Mofo, I presented two completely separate projects. Um, one of them was a multi-part um, extravaganza, I guess. It was a project that sort of grew and grew and grew from its inception. Uh, it was called A Galaxy of Suns, which is um, at its heart a data sonification project where we were working with live stellar data and turning it into music. And so that um, manifested as both a smartphone app for general public download um, as well as a 36-part choir composition where we worked with the TSO to um, yeah present that. The other one was the neon. Yes, so giant billboard text glow-in-the-dark work that says fear eats the soul. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, quite a contrast. I, I was, I was, uh, I mean, my practice is very diverse. Um, it's definitely inspired, you know, at its core, there's a, there's sort of a, a central set of inquiries or, you know, things that I'm interested in, but the outcomes can often seem quite disparate. So I presented a very ethereal, beautiful choir composition and in the background is this giant, um, you know, verging on tacky, humongous billboard thing that screams out fear eats the soul in bright red text. <laughs> but I think your works at the festival are both incredibly powerful in really different ways. Um, is this the first major festival kind of commissions you've done? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> I've been down this journey a few times and, you know, projects have fallen away or, or it hasn't worked out for whatever reason. But yeah, this is my first major festival contribution. So, and obviously, Dark Mofo is an amazing festival to be part of. So, I'm, yeah. I'm very happy that this was a festival, and especially having that. Uh, there's, I think, there's a freedom to Dark Mofo, um, and obviously, obviously, they've got their own very strong curatorial um, framework or, or intention for what they want to do. And it's not, even though both of the works that I presented were sort of spectacular in scale and presentation um pap, you know i don't see the app as being a spectacle as such but that's sort of a a, a a way that you can experience that project with a degree of intimacy i think i feel like in both the works um scale and accessibility become quite important and do, do you think those elements are really important in a festival context that was certainly part of so maybe I'll, I'll talk about um, A Galaxy of Suns in a bit more detail in yeah. a second because that was absolutely at the core of, of that work and my intention yeah. for that work was accessibility. Yeah. Um, I think in general, in terms of festivals, like I don't think that necessarily is or should be the case. I don't think we should be pandering for... Um, you know, the mass market. <laughs> Obviously, festivals generally do tend to do that. And, um, yeah, I mean, both the works that I made are very accessible but hopefully have, have layers and meanings that people can um, find beyond the, the surface. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's what festivals should do. <laughs> 
That's good, yeah. Cause even if even if my work has, like that's not <laughs> it's not something that I necessarily aim towards. So did you feel like very much encouraged by Dark Mofo to sort of take risks and think big? And did they, I mean, did you find them supportive in that way? Yeah, definitely. So the, both of the works came about in very different way so it's not like the festival came to me and said hey make something um i was uh so fear it's a soul for example has been in the pipeline since 2013 so quite a long time um i originally how that work came about i was part of the situate program down at salamanca arts center and i pitched a bunch of stuff none of that went anywhere um but dark mofo did ask me on sort of the back of of what I had proposed to respond to the facade of the Mercury building. So that was the original location of Fear Eats the Soul. It was supposed to be on the side of the Mercury building. Um, And so a lot of the conceptual backing behind that work. So obviously it comes across as, you know, it's a Um, (laughs) one-liner. But as, you know, as with all my projects, like I put every, every artist puts so much into their work and, most of that ends up getting stripped away, but you obviously hope that there's a residue of all the ideas and research that have gone into it that sort of gives the work um, some kind of power. So that, yeah, I was looking at the facade of the Mercury Building, which is obviously pure white, very masculine, upright, um, and the history of the newspaper in its sort of various um, forms goes back until the mid 1850s. So I was thinking very uh, much about the history of Tasmania and these power structures and how the media and obviously the colonial influences just wrought such terrible horrors on the state. And as I said, I grew up in Tasmania, so it's very much part of my own personal backstory, I guess. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to use, so uh, mid, 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 ugh, excuse me, the Midwinter Festival is historically a time where of great superstition and where people can you know to scare away the baddies and scare away the dark and scare away the night and and welcome back the sun and summer and life um into the world again so that all those sorts of things combined (laughs) so and also the idea that you know some this is you know an opportunity to have a voice i guess um to Tasmania or at Tasmania (laughs) and growing up in the northwest coast I I felt very strongly that it was a culture of fear that drove a lot of people's decision making so um, the thing that really gets me to this day is the fear of education I just find that you know mind-blowing that parents um, most of the kids that I went to school with didn't go to year 11 and 12 Um, and I think the reason for that obviously they wanted their kids to get a real job um, and they thought education was a waste of energy and time and money um, but I think the, what underpins that is a fear that their children will leave. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's generations of Tasmanians who haven't had the opportunities because their parents have been scared of what might happen if their kids um, become educated, and that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think that, I mean, in a sort of a larger cultural context as well, like what we've just seen happen in the UK, that's, a decision based on fear also and I'm you know not excited about the next election here in Australia um, for the same reasons like so many people let fear drive their decisions on a, on a mass cultural level but also on a personal level obviously it's a personal story too everybody can relate to um, 
moments where you allow your own fear to, to really hinder your life. Very, very important thing to, to, to mention is that, that that text isn't mine and I never, you know, intended it for that to be the way it's read. So it's the English translation of a Werner Fassbender film from um, the 70s, uh, Angst essen Ziele auf, so Fear Eats the Soul, and that film is about xenophobia um, and other forms of social prejudice in post-World War II Germany and my half of my family is German so that's another sort of part of, of my story I guess of my outlook on life is having that as part of my background so I'm half English half German which is like a horrific combination of um, <laughs> <laughs> cultural sort of baggage to, to, yeah. to wear and, I, and then I grew up in Tasmania so all those Layers. all that all that stuff goes into the melting pot that is my brain and then out pops you know, I, I searched um, quite hard for that for that phrase, and I once I stumbled across Fear It's a Soul, I just couldn't move on from yeah, that point. And got... presumably, also Lee Carmichael, the director of Dark Mofo, obviously it stuck in his mind also. So when I first pitched it in 2013, it was um, too expensive for them to to make, and yeah, obviously he sat on that idea until. A point when he could make it make it happen. Michaela originally conceived her work Fear Eats the Soul at the 2013 Situate Arts Lab, a two-week intensive program that runs out of the Salamanca Arts Centre. The Situate Art and Festivals program uses mentoring and collaboration as means to stimulate new ideas and methods for approaching art making for the festival context. Paul Gazzola, an artist working across many fields including curating, mentoring and developing his own public art projects, was one of the initial mentors for the Situate Arts Lab. We were able to speak with Paul about his own arts practice, as well as the role he plays in arts labs around public art and his meditations on the concerns of art in festivals. So my name's Paul Gasola. I uh, work as an artist and a curator in a cross-expanded field of contemporary performance, sculpture and scenographic design. I have a crowned well, I originally trained as a carpenter and then I studied dance and I had a long history of practice in Europe and Australia. And um, so that kind of lands me in a situation about working across the idea of the built form and working with people. And I think that's been a mainstay of how my practice has evolved over the years. And also, if I'm working in a festival context, I'm very interested in that notion of the participatory public or, and what that means to be able to try and achieve in a situation which can revolve from either um, the, the intimate idea of a one-on-one -on -one to kind of mass, kind of larger events. And then considering ideas about spectacle, what that might mean in a context of how you kind of drive something for a large number of people as opposed to smaller groups. So, yeah, that's probably where I'm at in direct relationship to festivals. I was involved in the first Situate Arts Lab in 2013 and I worked with a, a creative producer called Carly Leinbach and Rosemary Miller from SAC. So we worked on the design, the development and, you know, how the lab was going to be activated. Carly and I also had a previous working relationships on the 2010 and 2012 Splendid Arts Festivals, with Splendour in the Grass Festivals. So that already had given us a lot of understanding about generating works with artists, talking about ideas, getting artists around to look at festivals, think about ways to consider what's possible, you know, and what's achievable kind of uh, in, in a situation. And one of the interesting things that brought up was the idea of real estate. 
and the idea that when you're working in a, in a context, this is, say, Splendor in the Glass, um, they have this really primary concern. It's a financial venture as much as a, as a really fun event for people to kind of take part in. So you're dealing with an economy of a space as much as you're dealing with the idea of trying to bring people to, um, to, to, to take part in some way of thinking about the world or some kind of proposition to an idea. Does the approach that you have to making work in festivals differ from the one that you have when making work for a gallery exhibition? Yeah, um, yes. In a nutshell, yeah. <laughs> I looked at this and I said, yes. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, clearly, yeah, clearly there's a kind of a different scenario. You, with a festival, a lot of times you might have a very limited moment of interconnection you know and and that's not to say that doesn't happen in a gallery where you know they talk about a one to three minute grab with a video worth of the public you can trust the kind of public who will sit there you know with a festival work if we're talking site specific and outdoors you've got the approach and that is something that i'm very kind of interested when i speak to artists in these labs it's got all the preamble of this public coming to the work so if it's large say they can see it from a distance and that has already something going on as opposed to a work that might be inside a gallery where you know you've got maybe this pre-media that they understand that they're going to see something but it doesn't really reveal itself till they get inside the building so a location really has a lot of um uh bearing in how that work um uh kind of considers itself to to be do, do you know what I mean? You've got, you, if, you've got, um, if you've got the ability to kind of wander and turn up and see a work and, and amble your way to it, to, to do it, to see it, then you kind of can take your time. Sometimes in a festival situation, the public have the ability to take their time. They have the ability to come and see it multiple times. If it's a festival that's running over a couple of days, like the Splendour, people are locked away in this grounds for three days. So they can kind of use it as a signpost you know, I walk past that work to get to that. I see it. Some people might not go and visit the work till the second or third day when they go, oh, yeah, I should go in and check it out. Whereas it feels like a gallery public, their intention is really to go see it, engage within their kind of time frame that they've got and leave. So they, that sort of changes, in my mind, a little bit of thinking about what that public relationship might be to the work. We want to always say, are you sure that that's how people are going to read it? You know, you cannot 100% say that's the only way it's ever going to be read. And that's, you know, always an end criticality about any artwork that you're, you're left to the abandoned of public interpretation. So you do your best, you know, you try, you try your best to kind of cover all the bases, understand everything, but then in the end, you, the, the work, work is left to the interpretation of the viewer. And that's where, you know, amazing things happen. And that's, you know, I guess if we circle back to this idea about accessibility, it's where it's a really the most intriguing moment that the, work, the, the idea is let loose into the world and people start to kind of think about it and take it on for themselves. This is a really key one in the, in the episode that we're doing around spectacle and does art for a festival context need to incorporate spectacle? Mm, um, mm. I think it's a really... It's a really hard one to unpack as well when you do think about, you know, context and being able to see something from a long way or kind of pull people into it or like, is it, 
does it compromise things or does it not? Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Spectacle. Yeah. Um, it's a curious one. The Richie Aikido with the, um, the sound works that was in the carriage works in Sydney, this amazing sound piece with this light and sound score and then the works that were in the um, Dark Mofo uh, Festival, the very first one, that it had those uh, big train spotting lamps that were to the sky up on the, um, the hill. You know, that was amazing. For me, that spectacle... But there was also a point that the public actually could enter into it. So, you know, my understanding, if we consider spectacles, the idea um, that it's sort of a distancing thing, that the public are kind of in, in awe of something. But I don't know if I want to think that that doesn't mean they don't get anything out of it or they're just rendered kind of speechless in the, in the, in the face of this artwork. So I think that... Um, Spectacle has a really interesting place because it actually can be a thing that brings a lot of people together, you know. It, and sometimes it's actually, you know, one of the intentions for me or understandings about festivals is actually to be openly accessible to a whole gamut of people, not a select audience. So Spectacle has a place as much as intimate works that are kind of highly exclusive or kind of highly artistically considered that might be a little bit obscure. So there's, I think there's a balance between the both. And I think the successful festivals actually understand their role at operating between those two, offering works that you know, a lot of people can attend to as opposed to putting works that might be a little bit more like, oh, well, that's something I've never thought to go to. So so for me, a spectacle could be an attractor that could actually lead people to other things they might not have checked out before. Thank you for listening to What Are You Looking At? A podcast edited and produced by Pip Stafford and myself, Thea Connell, for Contemporary Art Tasmania. We'd like to thank our interviewees, Lee Carmichael, Michaela Gleave and Paul Gazzola for their time and insights. The music is by Josh Santospirito. Contemporary Art Tasmania is a professional level public presentation platform dedicated to developing contemporary art in Tasmania. To find out more about our programs, head to www.contemporaryarttasmania.org. What Are You Looking At can be found on our website as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you like what you hear, please rate us.